And welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andre Degeler, and today I am going to guide you together with our founding editor, Robin Wouters, in a short interview tour around Berlin. Normally, we would start the episode with a news recap, of course, but not this time, because Annie is taking a break and hopefully enjoying her time in Texas, so we will dive straight into it. Today I wanted to share with you three interviews that Robin Wouters, our founding editor, recorded recently in three different parts of Berlin. Our first stop is the headquarters of Zalando, the German e-commerce behemoth that is valued at around 10 billion euros. We won't talk about the company's journey or funding, however, but we will learn more about how to solve the problem that the ordered clothes sometimes don't fit. Hey, this is Robin Walters for Tech.eu. I'm here in Berlin at Zalando HQ, sitting now with Stacia Carr, who's the Director of Engineering for Size and Fit within Zalando. What does that mean? Hi, we're a team that focuses on solving our customers' most important problem, which is finding things that fit them the first time. And um, on the technical side, it means working with a lot of data and uh, novel algorithmic approaches to really recreating the connection between our creators, so our brands and suppliers, and our customers. So you touched on it already, but uh, you mentioned it's a problem. Uh, why is the problem in general and why is the problem at Zalando? Size and fit is a problem that goes all the way back to the advent of industrial manufacturing. When we put machines in between creators and consumers, we disconnected them and really made it hard for fashion brands to know what the dimensions of their customer's body actually are. If you think about it, before machine-made clothing, most of us had clothing made by a mom or grandma, somebody living with us at home that could actually measure our bodies and ask us how we like our clothes to fit. And uh, when you arrived at Zalando, it was about four years ago. What was the situation then compared to what it is now, thanks to your work? Four years ago, we were a little bit siloed around the capabilities in the organization. So the tech organization and the commercial organization were on you know opposite sides of East Berlin. And today we're integrated. So within my business unit, which is a really good reflection of the change, we look a lot like a startup. So we have business development team sitting next to data scientists and research engineers, software engineers, product people, designers, all working together around a really impactful customer problem. Um, what are some of the technologies that you've um, created or used to help solve this problem? So first and foremost, uh, machine learning is kind of one of the hallmarks of our technical strategy. On the other end of the spectrum, we work with uh, 3D technologies to really help build solutions so that customers can see what an item might look like on many different body shapes. And do you know how that work that you've done translates into actual numbers? Like how much has the returns gone down? How much does it help the bottom line? Can you really benchmark the work that you do? So being able to measure impact on return rate and customer satisfaction are really important. And we started working on this from the very beginning. So three years ago, we've uh, over the last two years been able to reduce returns, size related returns by 4%. And we have some pretty novel approaches actually for how we measure this. And that's it's a, a technical process, but we invested a lot of of time and energy, both on the qualitative and quantitative side, to really understand how we were helping customers find what fits the first time. 
As you mentioned in the beginning, everyone sort of has this problem. So uh, is there any specific way that you work with your brand partners to also help them uh, with this with this issue? Yes. So one of the benefits of the Zalando platform and being a brand on the platform is that you're there with 2,000 other brands. So just being able to demonstrate to a partner, hey, for your denim line, you're actually running 10 to 15 percentage points higher than comparable denim lines in the same kind of price category that's insight that a brand wouldn't have today unless they were on the Zalando platform. So that's kind of where we start was how do you compare from a size related returns perspective? And recently we've gone so far as to actually pull the brand's uh, assortment. So their actual jeans into our fitting station, our fitting lab, and give really detailed feedback around where we see there could be improvements in the product design. Great. And uh, within your uh, business unit, your little startup in, inside Zalando, uh, what are some of the things you're working on this year concretely? Today, we will look to extend what we call our size advice coverage, which is really making sure that as many customers as possible can benefit from size advice. So we offer advice for about 40% of items ordered, and we're going to push it to at least 50. And we'll do this by offering customers who we don't know as well an opportunity to tell us what's in their closet. So what shirt or what jeans fit you really well? What's the brand and what's the size? And we can use this to then infer and create size recommendations in the future. Maybe a little bit um, off topic, but what's the biggest surprise that you found in the research that you've done so far? What is the, the thing that stuck out the most that you didn't expect? So I was really skeptical when we started working on 3D technologies because I was personally afraid that if we showed customers you know, bodies in three dimensions, that they would be really turned off by this. And, and we still aren't sure that customers are ready to see an exact 3D replication of their own body. But what we've learned over the last 12 months through user research is people really want to see clothes in different ways. So the 3D avatar, different body shapes with renderings of garments. So we're working on denims and dresses. People love it and they want to see more. Great. I think that's uh, about all the things I wanted to ask you. It's quite quite exciting. I, I don't think I needed to introduce Zalando, but maybe just uh, for context, uh, how, how would you pitch Zalando these days? A tech company or an e-commerce company? We're right in the middle. And our ambition is to really be the starting point for fashion for both consumers and brands. And I think that's a, it's a really exciting proposition because it means that we get to go deep on some of the biggest and most challenging, potentially impactful fashion problems in the world. Great. Well, Stasia, thank you so much for your time and best of luck with everything. Thank you. Now let's move to our next stop, which is Finnovate Europe, a fintech-focused conference that happened in the German capital a couple of weeks ago. Here we will hear from Santander Inventures, a corporate VC fund that works with fintech startups. And among other things, we will try to find out why would actually anyone take money from a corporate VC? Hey, this is Robin Wartos for Tech.eu. I'm here at the Finnovate Conference, I should say Finnovate Europe Conference uh, in Berlin, Germany. I'm sitting now with uh, Manuel Silva Martinez from Santander InnoVentures. What is Santander InnoVentures? Hi, everyone. So Santander InnoVentures is your favorite corporate VC in Europe. So we're Santander Group's corporate VC. We invest in uh, fintech and adjacent areas to fintech, uh, typically at earlier stages across the world, including Europe, including not only London, but Definitely very interesting in other ecosystems with the dual objective of making you successful as an entrepreneur, which will make us successful. And at the same time, find ways in which uh, we can create strategic relevance for you guys with uh, our bank and some of the other parts of our network. Right, so tell us a bit more about the fund. Like how big are you? Where are you based? Where do you invest um, both verticals and geographies? 
Yeah, so we started about five years ago, as I was saying, investing in classic fintech mostly. We have now 30 companies. We typically invest somewhere between 2 and 10 million. And from a team perspective, the majority of the team is based in London, although we have a little bit of an antenna in San Francisco and we have people in Madrid. And then we also have uh, an implementation team in Madrid that helps uh, the companies we invest in actually work with the bank, which happens to be a very successful program that really makes entrepreneurs' life easy when it comes to interacting with, uh, with a large group like Santander. Great. And how do you get deal flow? Is it conferences like this one, uh, for example, or how else do you find uh, entrepreneurs to invest in? So conferences are very useful to, to get the word out, but really the best deals we get come from our co-investors and also from uh, the theses that we develop ourselves in terms of how we see the future of the industry. So if you, if you come see us, you'll realize that, you know, aside from, you know, the, the obvious topics uh, that you would expect from corporate VC to invest in, we're also very interested in, in shaping with entrepreneurs what the future financial services should be. And so we try to invest alongside the lines that we, that we identify. So even things that have to do with customer journeys that are changing, things that have to do with new infrastructure, things that have to do with you know, crazy ideas that are rethinking the industry are things that we think about. And that's, those are the deals that get us excited and we, we pursue. I will talk a bit more about that because we are about to release. Maybe by the time this comes out, it's already been released. Uh, but we're going to release a report on uh, fintech in Europe. Um, of course, growing numbers, uh, but also quite interestingly that the, the even the verticals within fintech is sort of uh, growing and expanding and becoming quite broad. Uh, so what are the trends that you've identified from a macro perspective as an investor? Yeah, so one, one thing we're excited about, especially in Europe, has to do with, with open banking as a concept, right? So not, not only what you see kind of the open banking 1.0, but also open banking as it opens up the, the barriers of the industry to, to other things. And one of our big theses for the future is how our financial services is going to address new customer journeys, whether it's in you know, mobility, whether it's in logistics, whether it's in... Uh, prop tech, things like that, and how financial services, which at the end of the day are an enabler to those other journeys, going to interact and, and kind of make hybrid business models. Uh, and more and more, we're seeing in Europe things that kind of resonate with that idea of blurry industrial borders and, and kind of connections between different industries and, and building new businesses around that, right? Great. Very clear. Now, corporate VC on its own in the U.S. This is, makes up, I think, more than half uh, at this point of uh, funding going to startups. In Europe, that's not the case, at least not yet. Probably going to grow. But it's not always, it's been a point of criticism, for example, from uh, Fred Wilson from USV. famously said, you know, don't take money from a corporate VC. What do you think is the benefit of taking money from, from Santander Ventures or, or corporate VC in general? I think corporate VC is a, is a complicated category because typically a lot of very different animals have been bundled into the same, right? And I think, thankfully, the market, one of the reasons for the big numbers, I feel, is on the one hand, because corporates are realizing that there is value in investing in startups and, and, and thinking through innovation through the eyes of the entrepreneurs, but also because there has been more market acceptance. And that really means that somehow entrepreneurs have seen the value of the good corporate VC programs as opposed to the bad ones, right? So the, the good ones to me are, are, on the one hand, programs that align financially with the success of those companies and effectively... Where the guys you deal with are behaving the same way a VC would behave, right? They want your success. They're not creating any weird boundaries, weird governance, nothing weird around you, uh, except for anything that can really help you thrive. But on the other side, uh, the good corporate VCs are the ones that are really able to put their organizations at the service of entrepreneurs, like I I think we do, uh, by bringing resources to make our entrepreneurs successful through facilitating the way they engage with the bank in whatever format works for them. Uh, so if you have those two sides, so this, the you know similar VC discipline as a regular VC, 
but at the same time, ability to really tap into those assets, I think those, those are the good programs. And so you, as an entrepreneur, you should know who you're marrying and, and dig a little bit more, but there's more and more of those that are probably structured. Uh, maybe in the same vein, uh, we go to this conference, you see a lot of um, big corporates, banks, insurance companies, uh, consultancies uh, come to this type of event to work with startups or at least find interesting ones to buy or to buy from. You sit somewhere in between uh, the corporate and the startup. How do you feel this relationship should be improved? How can startups sort of improve the way that they approach corporates, but also the other way around? How can the banks, insurance companies do a better job working with startups? Yeah, I think on the startup side, um, it's really about innovating, not in a vacuum in a way, right? And so typically when you do B2B, especially in regulated industries like financial services, you really need to understand your, your sales cycle so that when you approach a potential client, which is typically what startups want when they approach an organization, they really understand you know, how the decision process works and they have the resources to cope with um, probably lengthier process than they would in the, in the direct-to-consumer side of things. Right? So I think really knowing how to sell and knowing who your customer is and knowing how they, they work and behave, that's key. And to the extent and we typically like companies that have as part of their management team People who maybe slightly older and he's seen the the buy side of things, uh, who can interpret that for for their CEO, right? I think the same goes for the for the companies or for the for the corporates. At the end of the day, I think the best thing corporates can do, and I think we, we've done a good job at that, is to streamline the process whereby we can contract with those companies by reducing uh, barriers to to contracting, by uh, you know maybe easing some of the restrictions in terms of, you know, liquidity in those companies or, you know, how long they've been around, et cetera, et cetera. And also put some budget to work for experimental things because oftentimes the best way to sell to a corporate is just to show that your product actually works and what it can do for you. And oftentimes the biggest barrier to entry is precisely those like, you know, 10K euros that are missing just to do a pilot or a marketing campaign or something like that, right? So I think streamlining internal processes to be able to engage commercially with startups plus putting some experimental budget to work probably the best formulas for corpus to innovate. Very interesting. I'm going to give you a chance to profile some uh, companies in your portfolio. Now, you've exited companies like Isel, who everyone knows. You've invested in TradeShift, Curve. Uh, what are some of the lesser-known companies that you're really excited about? The lesser-known ones? Um, that's a good question. Uh, one of our latest investments, just to bring the, the latest one, is this company in Germany called Crossland. And, and it's very relevant to this to, to your audience because it, it, it wants to be a European-wide platform to facilitate basically capital markets innovation and facilitate access to liquidity to the smaller originators in the smaller markets that have a harder time accessing institutional capital. Uh, so those guys are maybe a little bit lesser known because they're more in the, in the wholesale banking side of things, uh, but really exciting and really interesting to any, any European listening to, to this. Uh, and then the rest is on, online, so you'll find all the other names. <laughs> And actually, my, my real final question, and this is something I like to ask VCs, what is some of the deals that you've looked at, didn't invest, and now feel like you've missed out on something? Oh, where should I start? Um, I mean, just because it's very timely, we look, we look at the seed run of Plaid, which I guess probably a lot of people look at that. And then there's something else. I'll probably keep that one. That's probably the biggest miss at this point. Uh, some others are back. Some others are, you know, we missed at some point, but they're back. And, you know, we, we like to keep good relationship with the people that we pass on. And, and, and even if we don't invest, the relationship stays on. So, so I would say the ones we've missed are the ones that have exited, but the others are still somewhere around. Of course, can't win them all, of course. Uh, Manuel, thank you so much for your time. I hope you enjoyed the rest of the conference and a safe trip back to London. Yeah, thanks so much. 
And we are coming to the final destination of this virtual Berlin tour. Welcome to the headquarters of Omeo, formerly known as GoEuro, a German unicorn that's working on a multimodal travel search platform. I have to say, I personally use it every time uh, when I need to take a train or bus uh, somewhere outside of the Netherlands, and it's been working like a charm. I can totally recommend it. So let's hear some technical details about how the platform works, together with a healthy dose of praise for Berlin as a startup city. So hey, this is Robin Walters for uh, Tech.eu. I'm here in Berlin, uh, Germany, sitting down with uh, Thomas, who's the VP of Engineering at Omeo, formerly known as GoEuro, I should say, because um, a lot of people still uh, know the company that way. Maybe you can uh, sort of quickly describe what Omeo is and what you do. Hey, welcome to Omeo. So I'm Thomas. I'm VP Engineering of the uh, leading travel tech company, and we are providing global inventory of all the travel information that users can get in Europe and recently in the United States as well. Which means if I go to omeo.com or I download the app, uh, what can I do as a consumer? So you will search for travel from A to B in Europe, in US or outside of that as well, because we also cover air globally. And you will get a list of options for rail, bus, flights and ferries connecting uh, your journeys and you will be able to compare prices times we will be able to apply multiple travelers into your journey you can apply discount cards you can apply many many other options and i believe that you will get the best offering at omeo and then you will go through the full booking process where you can in the end you will get a ticket for all your parts of your journey delivered from Omeo. And then you will, as I believe, download the app, install the app. And once you go and start your journey, you will use our app as a, your travel companion, where you get real-time information about what's happening on the journey, where are you, where is your platform to board your train, is there any problem, are there any delays, we'll keep you informed in real time about what's happening. Quite a sophisticated one-stop shop. Um, so just for context uh, about yourself, you joined Omeo after it was founded. Uh, what, would, what did you do before? So before Omeo, I spent six years in Microsoft and I was running a big part of Skype engineering, mostly in Europe. Great. And how is that different from working with a scale-up like, uh, like Omeo? So there are many differences. I think generally Omeo is one shop doing it all. So we have it all under our control there as a Skype. And it was very good journey. So we always had to align with, with many other businesses or units in Microsoft. There was very substantial dependencies, which sometimes help and sometimes slowed us down. Here at Omeo, we have it all in our hands. So that's a big difference. Well, then maybe let's dive into it. What kind of a technology do you uh, deploy here at Omeo? What kind of infrastructure are you using uh, that's very specific to, to this company? So at Omeo, uh, we are using cloud as our main, let's say, delivery platform. Our main development language on the back end is Java coupled with Golang and some of Node.js with TypeScript for sure. And these are our main backend technologies. On the front end, we have our web apps built in React today, 
we unified that about two years ago, and we are building native mobile apps, both Android and iOS, and we are also applying React Native across the board so that we get more consistency and SIM shipping across all platforms. As far as deployment, so we have very strong CI-CD platform, which allows us to ship near continuously. Many teams are shipping multiple times a day. We have very good monitoring and alerting system, which allows us to understand we ship anything. What is the impact for the users? Do they like it? Do they don't? We can analyze, we can roll back, we can be very agile in how we ship and deploy stuff to production. Great. And how big is the tech component of the company? Like how many people work in tech specifically? And also, is there anything specific about how you organize and, and sort of manage to seem? So we are a tech company, and I think it's can demonstrate it by the fact that there is about 250 engineers in so-called TPD, Tech Product Design Organization, OMEO, while we are about 400 in total. So bigger, bigger half of OMEO is still tech, which is good. And how we are organizing the tech. So we are pretty much organized along the user journey. So if you imagine people using OMEO, they would first land our landing pages where we have about close to 30 million visitors every month. And then we take them through the journey to our landing pages, which is our core experience as we call it today which means search engine and then booking engine, which unifies and, as I shared before, delivers in the end the tickets to the users. All that is supported by team, which is called Coverage, and they take care of these like 800-plus real-time integrations with bus, rail, air providers, now I could say worldwide. And we have additional team looking at merchandising, like what are the options, what can we offer to our users so that they can actually buy it, be it insurance, be it some other options. How can they make their journeys nicer and easier and safer? We also have a team which we call expansion, where we have few of the projects which we are actually developing currently. And we see them as a kind of an incubation phase. This is, for instance, as we look at our ferries project that we started generally last year, and we are working very hard on providing best user experience for ferry users, as well as gathering, again, coverage, integrating with various ferry providers and integrators around Europe. And just a question, like aside from uh, new modes of transportation like ferries, from a tech perspective, what are some of the things you're working on now? What can users expect in 2020 to roll out for them in terms of product, new features, etc.? So as we covered very well, I would say the single mode transport, and we are working very hard on providing more and more multimodal offerings, routed connection, combined connections, I would say lots of that is already available and people may not even call it multimodal, but for instance, combining different air companies, you can fly by EasyJet to London, coming back by Ryanair. That would be very hard to do today on other platforms, but we, we support that in many cases. We just launch options to combine various trains and buses in, in some ways. So definitely we are looking into providing more multimodal options 
in the transport. Assuming that a large part of your role is also uh, hiring and retaining uh, the best talent that you can find here in Berlin. Uh, you're obviously a very heavily uh, funded tech company, but you're not the only one. So I would like to ask from your perspective, what is the competitive landscape when it comes to you know hiring the best people here in Berlin these days? So first, I would say it's great to be in the capital of startups in Europe, <laughs> which is Berlin today, definitely. It gives us access to very large, let's say, market with a lot of potential, with lots of roles. And what we can offer, how, how do we compete? So I definitely believe by the technology. Anyone joining Omeo will have a chance to work on very large scale projects where everything we do has millions of users running it most nearly in real time. Our technologies are using very modern stacks. As I said, it's microservice oriented with a very strong CI, CD, continuous integration, continuous deployment platforms, and all these kind of systems are in place today. So very large-scale challenges, up-to-date technologies, and even more challenges lying ahead of us. Yeah, but that's sort of the the how you would appeal to to talent but do you actually see that the competition for talent is getting more intensive or or is it slowing down what what's your view on that so i would say it has been fierce for last 20 years <laughs> so i wouldn't say if it's getting it's tough it's been tough it's tough in my previous role in microsoft i was running teams in london in us in other places and i would say it's tough everywhere so Definitely what gives us an edge is really like technology, vision, and reach. We are one of the few Europe, pure European companies that are really developing, deploying, and building product which has a worldwide reach. Absolutely. Um, if you had unlimited resources, how big do you think your, your team would be if you want to do all the things you're already doing, but faster and perhaps you know, better? I think with the resources we have, we'll keep growing and we'll get to something like two and a half thousand engineers. I think that would be a right, let's say, size of the organization to be really able to cover globally the, all the continents. Really like the ambition. Uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for sitting down with us and best of luck with uh, Omeo. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Dear passengers, dear listeners, that's it for our today's journey and for today's podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for choosing TechEU. Please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That's sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at techEU. Thank you for listening. Enjoy your week. Talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye.